Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. All right, we want to welcome everyone back. We are not, this is just Rob tonight, no, no Vinny again, but this is a study that we've been doing via Zoom for a number of months now, and this is kind of our maybe our third set of studies. I know we only posted the audio files for a couple of the studies, but we're looking at the kingdom of God and justice. And actually, I think I've titled this like kingdom of God, justice, and mission. And what we want to look at is what does the kingdom of God mean now and fleshing that out in even more detail? What does biblical justice look like? That's just a word that's thrown around a lot in our modern church today. And then tying that to the mission of God's people. And I think that's, and then from that, we can then begin to answer, ask questions about, well, how does this apply to some of the bigger issues or for justice issues globally or locally? We're going to start tonight by looking at the book of Exodus. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 2. And if somebody wants to read verses 11 and 12 of Exodus chapter 2. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses is taking justice into his own hands. Now let's turn to verses 23 through 25. Exodus chapter 2 again. 23 through 25, if somebody else wants to read those. Now it came about in the course of these many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he saw the sons of his and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. So let's kind of fill in a little bit of what's happening in the book of Exodus here. And I think the story of Exodus is often very familiar to many people. The book of Exodus begins by linking itself to the book of Genesis, if you're not aware of that. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob. Uh, Genesis 46, verse 8. That's actually a direct quote from Genesis 46, verse 8. I know it's, a, it's just a repetition of the verses. Genesis 46, verse 8 says, these are the names of the sons of Israel uh, who came out of Egypt. And so what happens when you do that, when you repeat a verse from, from an earlier text, is you're saying, hey, by the way, this is just a, a continuation of the previous story. So Exodus is linking itself with the Genesis story. It also links itself with the Genesis story in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, mighty so that the land was filled with them. Kind of reminds you of something else, right? What does it remind you of? I think Derry mouth Genesis, is that right? Yeah. Genesis 1, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not only are the Israelites being fruitful and multiplying, but they're actually fulfilling the biblical mandate to fill the earth. The land was filled with them. Well, the problem becomes, verse 8, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Yeah, I have no idea who you guys are. All I know is, is that you are numerically a threat to my empire. You're becoming so powerful because of, of the number of individuals that you're becoming a threat to me. And I don't like this. And so what he says, in verse, verse 9, he says, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. 
come, verse 10, let's deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. There's that Genesis language again. And in the event of war, they join themselves with those who hate us. And so if you know the story of the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments and the famous American movies, at least, on the Ten Commandments, what happens is the Israelites are brought into slave labor and they become slaves in Egypt. And they become desperate. Now, what's very intriguing about the book of Exodus is that you have to go through all the way through chapter one and chapter two until the verse that I think Anna just read for us in verses 23 through 25 to the first time you see the word God. In other words, God is never mentioned in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. And all of a sudden, their bondage, their cry out for help because of their bondage in verse 23 of chapter two rose up to God. And God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Right? This is a very common theme in the biblical text. And that is God hears the cries of the oppressed and then God acts. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to watch for that as we go through some of the passages in weeks to come. God's going to hear the cry of the oppressed and he's going to act. Now, how does God act? That's my question. What does God do? They may know the answer. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Helen. Does he appoint a leader, first of all? Uh, yeah, okay, explain what you mean. Well, he identifies Moses as the person that can lead them out of slavery. So somebody, a leader on earth that can do his. Yes, leader. yeah, and, and I think that's, that, that's the answer I was, th I was thinking of. God acts by calling Moses. So the chapter break may do us a little bit of harm if we think, and again, when you read the scriptures, chapter breaks are obviously they're important because you don't want to have chapter one, verse 1,472. Uh, so, you know, we make them more, more manageable. So my daily devotion today is, you know, is this chapter, I have 3,000 verses to read. Not going to work. The chapter breaks are fine, but when you read a chapter, think, hey, does this chapter connect with the previous chapter? Now, if you're reading it in Greek and Hebrew, actually, by the way, it's really easy to do because it tells you uh, the, the Greek and Hebrew has certain words to tell you the relationship of this verse to the previous one. So our English Bibles don't always do that. Chapter three, verse one. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro. And you should immediately go, oh, because the end of chapter two was God took notice of them. And the next verse is, and Moses was out uh, pasturing the flock. Oh, I guess that's our answer. It's Moses. So somebody skip down now. If, if somebody wants to read chapter three, verses seven through 10. Exodus three, verses seven through 10. All right, uh, out of the NRSV. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the call of Moses is God's response to the cry of the oppressed. Let me begin now, going any further, by asking a question. And the question is, what is salvation from? I would say that the answer is death. The biblical answer is death. And think about this. 
in the garden, it, the, the consequence was, if you do this, you will die. Right. The reason why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden was because they wouldn't die in the garden because the tree of life was there. So the goal is resurrection. The goal is resurrection life. Uh, not to be said, I think most American Christians think that the answer is, oh, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And so once I was lost, but now I'm found, therefore I'm good to go. And now I get to go to heaven when I die. And so the goal actually is for most uh, evangelical Christians, I think, especially as we kind of end the 20th century, enter into the 20th, 21st century now, it's the idea of being, well, my goal is to get saved so I can go to heaven when I die because I'm lost and I need to be found or, or I'm blind and I, and I need to see. Whereas scripture says, no, the goal is new creation. The goal is Eden restored. The goal is uh, for God to, to dwell amongst his people again in amongst his createdness. So that's why we said, you know, we've been discussing and we'll go through this a little bit more in a few minutes. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord, but I've said, okay, yeah. And, and the last few weeks I've said, and we have to remember that we need to add to that because the gospel of Jesus is Lord is not, that's not the, uh, it's, I, I like saying it that way because it's easier to remember and it's simple and it's the best starting point. And I think you can make, a fullness out of that story of Jesus is Lord and I'm not, and Jesus is Lord and you're not, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. But the reality, of course, is that he's Lord and his death and resurrection and ascension are key, are key elements of that. All right, let's go through the, through the study now. So we read uh, Exodus 2 at the beginning, and the point of, of reading the Exodus 2 was to say that when God does his work of bringing justice for the sake of the oppressed, he calls his people. So justice work is not like some add-on or bonus thing. It's not some additional thing that, oh, well, you know, if I get an opportunity to do, to do some justice things, I'll do some justice things. Actually, justice is part and parcel of what the people of God are all about and, and, why, and why they were called. So let's kind of begin. And then tell me if you have any questions or comments on the notes, et cetera. And again, I, I gave you a script before the notes. If you get time to read that, that's always going to help you because it kind of goes, hopefully corresponds uh, from what's going on. All right, so uh, the biblical focus, so biblical concept of missions or the mission of God, the biblical focus is on making God known. Making, and some of you remember, I've gone over this before in, in other classes. The biblical focus is on making God known. This is the essence of scripture, and it's the essence of the biblical story, that God desires to dwell among his people. So it's not making him known simply intellectually but in making him known personally and intimately and relationally. God wants to be known, not as some thought or as some concept or as some exam on a seminary paper of, uh, you know, tell me the nature of the Trinity and explain it in, you know, in, in 15 words or, or, or less. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck on spending the 1500 words or less. But God wants to be known intimately and personally and relationally. And this is the biblical story. And so the biblical story now is that God's on this mission of saying, all right, I want to be known intimately, but Adam and Eve and humanity was kicked out of the garden and lost that intimate presence of God. And so now the goal of scripture is to have that presence of God restored. Some of you remember Henry Blackaby who wrote the book. Experiencing God. Thank you very much, Gracie. That's what that, you're always so helpful. Experiencing God. So Blackaby says, uh, the question that most people ask is, what is God's will for my life? And Blackaby says, that's the wrong question. The question we should ask is, what is his will? Or what is your will? And the way Blackaby says it, and some of you might remember that, he says, every day, 
instead of saying, God, what is your will for my life today? As though that, the question of what is your, what is your will for my life centers around me. Okay, God, it's all about my world. And I want you to show me what you, you know, what, what your will for my life is this day. Instead, Blackaby says, the focus actually is about what God is doing in the world. And he says, what we should be focusing on each day is to say, okay, God, where are you at work? And how can I join you there in the midst of my day to day? So as we're going through the day and we're shopping in the store, we realize, oh, there's a person that might need prayer or the fire and, uh, truck goes by or a policeman goes by. I'm going to stop and pray because somebody has a need now and something's going on, whether it's the first responders that, that have a need or somebody that's been injured or, so, or, or the policeman that need protection or the, or the civil justice that needs to be done. So let's, let's pray. Where is God working at? And God, okay, God, work there because I know justice is needed there. Whatever's going on, I don't know what it is, but work there. Uh, where, are you, where are you working and how can I join uh, your work there? So another, another thing to think about is this. Uh, this is from Christopher Wright. And if you ever heard of, if you ever read Christopher Wright, he's phenomenal. His name, last name is spelled the same as N.T. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And Christopher Wright has a phenomenal ministry in, in London. He took over for John Stott. Some of you know John Stott. And when John Stott passed away, he handed his ministry off to Christopher Wright. Christopher Wright says it this way. He says, there was no mission in Eden and there will be no mission in the new Jerusalem. Right? There's no need for mission in Eden. God's will is done because what's God's will to be made known. God's known personally, relationally, and intimately by everyone. And in the new Jerusalem, well, I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God and the lamb are its temple. In fact, Revelation 22, I think verse four says that we will see his face. Isn't that awesome? Right? If you, I mean, Moses was not allowed to see God's face. He just, hey, Moses, hide in the back of that rock over there. I'm going to pass by really quickly. You're just going to get a little glimpse of the back, right? That's about all you're going to get right now. And Revelation 22 says, we will see his face. Right? That's that intimacy of knowledge. Well, there's no need for mission. Because if the mission of God's people, what I want you to understand is that the mission of God's people is not simply pure evangelism. And that's the way I was raised. That's certainly the way American Christianity has focused on for a long time. But the mission of God is evangelism, making God known intellectually. And this, no. The people, people are crying out for justice. Oh, Moses, come here. Go make me known to Pharaoh. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. If you, if you read through the book of Exodus, it says, when you do these things, then Pharaoh will know who I am. And then a little while later, it says, and when you do these things, then, then all Israel will know who I am. And a little while later, it says, and then all Egypt will know who I am. That was the whole point. They're going to know me. It wasn't simply this, oh, let's bring judgment upon Pharaoh and salvation to God's people. It's like, no, it's about bringing justice there. Right, so, so he's saying that people get to know God by his justice? Uh, yes, uh, I would. I would say they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Right. So the loving act, God and the just God, right? Yeah, exactly. So the act and loving one another, of course, is the second of the two great commands, right? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. As we act like God's people, meaning as we act like God acts, then God's made known. Because Jesus is love. If you love like I do, they're going to know who I am. Paul says, be imitators of me as, I, as I'm an imitator of God. It's this act of imitation. And imitation, of course, is this God of justice and reconciliation, redemption, and restoration. I think yeah, one please. other one was kind of echoing what you're saying, but say about like, you know, um, you know, the fire 
uh, fighter going by or you know it's the same praying what my your will is for me today but what the will is for like the overall world and stuff and maybe it was in the paper you sent out because i don't think this is an original thought of my own but um it was one of those things where like you know the lord's prayer it says give us our daily bread i didn't say give me my daily bread it says and then like deliver us from evil it's it's it's, it's always an us in the in the in the prayer of the day you know the, the lord's prayer and and so I think that kind of echoes kind of what you're saying is that when we pray that prayer, we're not praying what what what's your will for me. It's it's what's your will for us as like followers of Christ. Right. So I think I think that's where that resonated with me when you were saying that that it's it's an us word, not a what you what's your will for me today? Because I'm looking very selfish. We're good at that though, by the way, aren't we? Yeah, I'm super good at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm better than you. I promise you, I am. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna that would be a fun little argument right now. See. He's more selfish. So number two then is, let me see where I'm at. The nature of God's mission is bringing the kingdom of God in its fullness. So let's begin with this. The gospel is, if you've been with us for the last years, we've been doing this study. And for those of you that were at my church for years before that, I, I always realized that most Christians don't know what the gospel is. And Gracie was actually at that seminar with me. Then I always tell that story. I was at a conference and Gracie was in the room. We were there and we went to this breakout session and this guy's doing a breakout session and he's got a hundred or more people in the room. In fact, I'm in the doorway halfway out the room and he turns around and he says, what is the gospel? And he stops and he says, I bet if we ask everybody in this room, these are all pastors and church planners. If we ask everybody in this room what the gospel is, I bet we get a hundred different answers. And I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And I thought, I bet he's right. And then he turns around and he says, he says, I define the gospel as radically transforming the world or so, something along those lines. And I have the actual quote written down somewhere, but it was something along those lines. And I don't know if, you remember, if Grace remembers this, but I turned around to somebody very near me and I said, I think Hitler said that. Because I realized as soon as he said the gospel is radically transforming the world, I thought, well, Pepsi Cola could say that. And I, I thought, you know, I think Hitler actually said that uh, or could it, right? And I, I, you, know, you know me, I can't whisper. So if I whispered it to the person next to me, the people in the first in the last three rows are, that are inside the room probably heard it as well. You know, and I'm like, oh, oh well. But the reality, it's like, what is Christian about that statement? There's nothing Christian about it. Any religion can say it. Any corporation can say it. Any politician can say it. I want to radically transform the world. It sounds great if you don't think about it critically. But the point of it is, it's not. There's nothing Christian. So I left that conference and I thought. I have, if these pastors don't know what the gospel is, oh, and by the way, the pastors were in an up when he said, when he said, oh, this is awesome. That's all. I'm going to write that down. I'm like, no, don't write that down. It's not very good. I'm thinking if these pastors are odd, when this guy who's presenting doesn't even know what the gospel is, I have a feeling that the average Christian has no idea what the gospel is either. So I began going, okay, look guys, here we go. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. Let's start there. Let's make sure we got that clear. If you don't have Jesus in your statement of the gospel, you probably don't have the gospel down correctly. We, uh, let's start there. And okay, now let's flush out what that means. If he's Lord, I'm not. I, we flush all that out. So we always start with the fact that the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. But let me kind of give you a longer, more complete definition now. The gospel is the good news that God is King and that Jesus is Lord. The gospel is the good news that God is the King and that Jesus is Lord. So you can see the way that I've defined that first sentence is we've already included the kingdom in, it's got kingdom language in it. 
Now, mind you, Jesus' Lord has kingdom language because if he's the Lord, he's the Lord of something. And so we have the God as the king and Jesus is the Lord. Let me kind of add another, a second sentence to that statement now. He has already begun to establish his reign through Jesus. He's already begun to establish his reign through Jesus and his new creation. So the gospel is the good news that, Je- that God is king and Jesus is Lord, and that he's already begun to establish his reign and his new creation. So that would be a second statement. Because again, if you kind of left Jesus as Lord alone, you can get a lot of people saying, oh, I believe Jesus is Lord. And therefore they're, they're Christian. And I'm like, well, you know, I've kind of clarified, no, he's Lord means that we actually live as though he's my king and I'm not the king. My money is not my king. My power is not my king. My, you know, my wife is not my king. My family is not my king. Only Jesus is the king. So I clarified it that way. And I hope that was sufficient there. The gospel is the good news that God is the king, that Jesus is Lord, that he's already begun to establish his reign and his new creation. That's not a third sentence now. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been redeemed and become partakers in his kingdom. Through his death and resurrection, we've been redeemed and have become partakers in his kingdom. So through his death and resurrection, we've been redeemed and have become partakers in his kingdom. So three sentences then. The gospel is the good news that that God is king and Jesus is Lord. That's one. That he's already begun to establish his reign and his new creation. That's two. And that thirdly, through his reign, through his death and resurrection, we've been redeemed to become partakers in his kingdom. There we go. Are we good with that? Any questions or thoughts or comments or So what this more complete definition is doing now for us is giving us a fuller understanding of what the gospel really is, and that it's entailing the kingdom, and is establishing that death and resurrection are a central role of that kingdom, and central element of that kingdom. And some of you already know the answer that I'm going to give, that that I've given in the past. If I were to clarify that third sentence more, that through his death and resurrection, we've been redeemed and become partakers in the kingdom. I would add by saying, oh, and we become partakers by doing what? By imitating Jesus and his death and resurrection. That's the part that I think is so often left out, but that maybe I should even include that. Hey, that's out of four sentences now. We become partakers in his kingdom by imitating Jesus and his death and resurrection. All right. Any questions or thoughts? Does the the gospel also mean that like, that's, those are the books where he makes himself known to us. Oh, so we call those gospels, but I'm using the, the gospel as, hey, what is the oh. definitive creed of Christendom? Got it. Okay. I'm not going to simply say, okay, you have to believe it this way. Uh, and if you don't believe it this way, then that's, then forget it. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to be writing on this on my, on my blog that some of you guys have been following. One of the questions that evangelicalism raises is the idea that Evangelicalism says that everybody needs to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior as their personal Savior, right? You need to personally accept Jesus as your Savior. That's, that's a credo of evangelicalism. And obviously, I've been an evangelical all my life. All right, fine. And welcome, by the way, Marcus. Good to see you. The problem with that is, as I've traveled the world, and you see individuals in Middle Eastern countries whose Christian family goes back 1500 years or maybe longer and they don't have 
any personal experience of accepting Jesus as their personal savior. Am I going to turn around and say, well, you're not a Christian then? So I want us to be careful saying, hey, we're not making this rigid definition of the gospel that defines who's in and who's out with absolute certainty. I'm simply saying, hey, this is the framework for the beliefs of Christendom, and let's kind of build from there. All right, here we go. Number two, then. Uh, number th- uh, uh, Letter B. So that's the gospel. All right. Now, uh, let, point number one underneath capital A or whatever it was, was that all who believe in, uh, and follow Jesus may enter. The significance of that statement, and that's simple, and it seems like a simple and shallow statement, but the significance of that statement is this, is that Jesus is changing the rules of the game. When Jesus says, all who believe, repent and, and believe, that's Mark chapter one, repent and believe, the kingdom of God's at hand. He's changing the rules of who can enter and who, and who can't enter. Yeah, in Judaism, at the time of Jesus, those who enter are the Jews. In other words, to enter the kingdom of God means to be a child of Abraham. Now, Judaism did not say that you had to be circumcised and follow the food laws to enter the kingdom of God. It's, that's what kingdom of God people are. And then what we do is we do these things to maintain our status as members of the kingdom. That's why honest statement is correct, because tax collectors and sinners, they're out now. Even though they're children of Abraham, they're not in because they aren't doing these things to maintain their status within Israel. And that's a, a big issue that's become very prominent in the theological world. When we get to the book of Ephesians and Galatians later on, we'll, we'll kind of go, go, get into that stuff in more detail. All right, so now in saying all who believe may enter, uh, all who believe and follow Jesus may enter, we're now saying there's no more distinctions between whether or not it's male or female. There's no more distinction about whether it's Gentile or Jewish. There's no more distinctions about whether, you know, you have this education or that education, slave or free, economic standing, social. And all of a sudden now, all you must do is believe it and and enter. And now, of course, what happens is the mission to the nations opens up because now we've transcended this bit, this barrier, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been, has been demolished, has been broken down. The letter B, the kingdom of God is the totality of God's work. Let's define the kingdom of God now in case we haven't done this before. The kingdom of God is the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. The kingdom of God is the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. The kingdom of God is the work of God's, the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation. And the reason why I think it's so important to say all of creation is because it's not just human-centered. If it's all of creation, it's all of creation. And some of you might be aware of this, but in American Christianity back in the 1980s, it was very popular and still kind of popular today, but hopefully it's fading out more and more. The mentality was that God's going to come back soon and he's going to judge and condemn the world. And he's going to destroy the world by fire because that's what Second Peter 3 says, which is, that's not what it means. God's going to destroy the world with fire. And during the 1980s, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, starts with a K, the Secretary of the Interior under Ronald Reagan, James Watt. James Watt. There you go. That's what I knew. I started with the K. Like I said, James Watt started with the K. Okay, whatever. Just work with me for a minute. 
he made the statement that he was the, he was the secretary of the interior. His responsibility is America. Take care of the take care of this country. And he says it doesn't matter if we destroy if we destroy the environment because God's going to burn it up anyways. And it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Now, what that does, by the way, you know, where, how does that? How do you get a mentality from that? Well, you get a mentality of that because you read scripture the wrong way. You read about the end times the wrong way. But then what does that enable you to do? It enables you to exploit the environment. And you exploit the environment for material gain. I mean, think about this. Who likes him saying that? The people who mine coal, the people who make money off of lumber, the people who make money off of oil, the, the people who make the industries that prosper by deforestation or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that you have to hug trees. And that. I'm just saying, Wait a second. If the totality, if the kingdom of God is the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring all of creation, then we better think about our responsibility towards the creation a little bit more. But the well, reality Ron, is, yeah, go ahead, Derry. It also kind of brings up the fact that we, just because we're like to be sovereign over it, doesn't mean that we're the center. And as in particular Americans, but I know all humans do it is that we think we're the center and we don't ever, we're not part of, you know? Right. So we exceptionalize and la, la, la. Yeah. So when, when Genesis 1 says to rule over the earth and subdue it, it means to build bridges. So, okay, cool. So I, I need lumber to do that. Maybe still to do that. That's fine. But we have to, we have a responsibility at the, to the creation at the same time to care for and steward it all, also. So, and there's a lot of things about the poor and everything else there. Uh, if you remember back, some of you remember when we did that conversation on Romans 8 and the conversation on Romans 8 went a direction. I know that you always want to take Romans 8 conversation and not the direction that I wanted it to. But what I wanted you to see in Romans 8 is that the whole creation wails and groans waiting for its redemption, for, for its restoration from decay. It's creational. And we get in Romans 8, we think, oh, you know, predestination, free will. Let's talk about this now. You know, those who are predestined. And that's fine. We had, it was a good conversation, but nonetheless. So Romans, it's Romans 8, verses 9. Actually, let's read it. Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, if somebody wants to read. Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. There you go. It's the whole creation. You see that? The whole creation is wailing and groaning, waiting for its liberation from its bondage to decay. And now let's turn to Revelation 21, because this will be interesting for you. Revelation 21. And this is commonly misunderstood as pretty much every verse in the book of Revelation is, right? Revelation 21, and read verse 1. If someone wants to read verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. Oh, that's an interesting translation. What translation do you have? Um, Net Bible. Oh, okay. That's a good translation. Very good. And my translation says passed away. The first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. Or oh, the first heaven of the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. Question is, what does Revelation 21.1 mean when it says they passed away? Now, what it's been taken to mean un incorrectly is that, oh, 
it's obliterated. So hence James Watt saying, yeah, see, God's going to just blow this whole thing up and destroy it with fire. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Well, our answer as to what passed away means, and was, what is it that's passed away? Is it the actual physical earth and heaven that's destroyed, which, by the way, would make no sense because where would we exist in that time frame? Look at verse four. Someone want to read Revelation 21, verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. He tells you what's passed away. What's passed away? Pain. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, death. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be evil? Yeah, evil. Sure. Yeah, corruption. Yeah. He literally tells you three verses later what actually he means by passed away. And if you keep reading, you know, verse, verse 10, the, the new Jerusalem comes down to heaven from God. Well, I thought heaven, I thought heaven passed away. No, it didn't pass away. It's the corruption within it that passed away. Death passed away. Pain, suffering, those things shall be no longer, and they have passed. And now, I don't know, by the way, Helen, did your, was your translation consistent there in verse 4 and verse 1? Yeah, they both talk about existing no more. Okay, very good. Yep. Yeah, and, and the Greek is exactly, the, it's the same word in verse, in verse 4 as it is in verse 1. Apelthon, it's has passed away. And so he tells us what passes away in verse four. And the answer is the injustices, the death, the suffering, the pain, the crying, the mourning, etc. Right, now let's go to, to Isaiah 65, and maybe we'll finish up here in just a few minutes. Isaiah 65, and this will be interesting, interesting conversation, depending on how, how we want to take this. Isaiah 65, we're going to look at verses 17 through 25. This is uh, 65. Uh, uh, yeah, Isaiah 65, thanks, Tom, verses 17 to 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them and they will plant vineyards and eat the fruit. No longer will they build houses other than and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they build tri bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf of the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. There will be neither harm nor they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, thanks, Tom. We would say that Isaiah actually doesn't even have a complete understanding of what the new creation is, because it's even better than what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, well, an old man will, there won't be an old man who does not live out his days. Like, no, there won't be an old man who dies. They're not going to die at all. 
So Isaiah's understanding actually is incomplete. But notice again, Isaiah's understanding is not a obliteration of the present heavens and earth and a, a new one coming, especially this new one being like heavenly and spiritual. No, it's it's extremely physical. So I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things should not be remembered or come to mind. And what's not going to happen in this new heavens? And, well, you're not going to have people dying. And by the way, that infant mortality was so was extremely high in the ancient world as much of the world history, it's been extremely high. You have very few children even surviving birth. Many people failing to even make it past the age of nine or 10. That's not going to happen anymore, any longer. And then, of course, you also have harmony even amongst the animals. The lion and the wolf, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the, the lion will eat straw like the ox. And so you have this idea of this restored creation. So the kingdom of God is this total restoration and redemption of all God's creation. Of course, a good way of saying it, as I like to say it, is that it's Eden restored or Eden redeemed, right? It's this Eden redeemed. I don't, the, the problem with Eden restored is the fact that it's not Eden, it's better than that. It's, it's because it's resurrection. If it was Eden restored, what Adam and Eve didn't have in Eden is they didn't have the experience of suffering. They didn't have the experience of suffering that we have. Remember, they had some pain because childbearing will be increased. And you're going to have to toil even harder to work, the, to work the fields. They had some toil, but they didn't, have the, they didn't know what it was like to lose a child. They didn't know what it was like to suffer intense suffering and pain. We have experienced that. So when we get Eden restored, it's Eden redeemed, it's even better. Because we, we recall how bad it was, and therefore we know how great it is. I'm stuck on something. Go ahead, please. Is it just Isaiah's misunderstanding? But why would you have children in heaven? It's Isaiah's failure to grasp the fullness of it. So what Isaiah is certainly grasping, remember, even John the Baptist didn't understand the, the gospel message that Jesus was proclaiming. He's like, well, I'm not sure I understand this because it's not, it's not working out the way I expected it. So you have this limited understanding, this limited perspective. And, and again, this I'm probably messing with your minds a little bit because you're thinking, wait a minute, it's inspired by God. So of course they had this divine, under, under, they, God works within their own limited mindset. And so in the Old Testament world, eternal life was living here for eternity but not by you, but by your offspring. And that's, that's Psalm 37. So if you read Psalm 37, eternal life is we live in the land with total peace and freedom. No foreign, no foreign enemies are ever going to take this land away from us. And there's also going to be no natural disasters that take this land away from us. And if you have children and they have children and they have children, and they live long enough, then your name will be remembered forever. That's eternal life. That's Psalm 37. Isaiah is working within that perspective. He doesn't understand the resurrection mindset. You have only one passage in the entire Old Testament that gives you any inkling of resurrection. And it's Daniel, Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. And so if you have this infantile concept of a resurrection, then how do you get this understanding of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth with resurrected bodies? You, you don't get that. So that's that limited perspective that Isaiah has. And so he's like, okay, well, if this is going to be great, then what's going to happen is we won't have animals ravaging my, my sheep because that's how I live. So the lion's not going to like terrorize. 
So he's thinking of this gloriousness of the eternal kingdom when it's restored, but he can only think within that context of, of the frame of mind that he has at the time. And, and people don't like that, by the way, because you're thinking, well, Isaiah's wrong. No, he's not wrong at all. He's just simply limited. And, and, it, and it's, better, it's better than this. By the way, people take Isaiah 65 and say, this must be about the millennium because people die in Isaiah 65. And therefore, it has to be about the millennium. It's like, no, no, you don't, have to, you don't have to stress that at all. Isaiah is clearly talking about a new creation, right? Because I created a new heavens and a new earth. That's new creation. That's the new Jerusalem. But he only has this limited perspective. And that's all he has to work with. So that makes sense. Very good. Good question. Peter mentioned before he had to get off the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is the new creation coming down here and restoring and redeeming all of the all of the creation so it's this creational sense some of you are going well okay well this is all great rob i've heard this before but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference for me now and the answer is this is what we're supposed to be working towards you see the reason why we have a problem with what i'm saying in terms of like how does this apply is because we think oh god's just going to cosmically do all do it all someday Jesus is going to restore, is going to come down from heaven and poof, it's all going to happen. Boom, there it is. Resurrection, all is done. And the answer is, well, that's partly true, but we are also called to be agents of that restoration now. And that's the part that I don't think our understandings of the end times and all that stuff have wrapped our heads around very well. One quick reference, and we'll maybe look it up next week. First Corinthians 15, 58 basically says, be steadfast and because your toil is not in vain. You're like, well, if you're going to blow all this up and then like recreate everything, of course my toil is in vain. Now, the reason why First Corinthians 15, 58 is so significant is because that's the last verse of Paul's longest speech. Paul, not Jesus, but Paul. Paul's longest speech is 1 Corinthians 15. Anybody know the topic of that speech? What's 1 Corinthians 15 about? Isn't it about resurrection? It's the resurrection. Yeah. yeah. 1 Corinthians okay. 15 is yeah. about the resurrection. The entire chapter is the longest speech of Paul on any one topic, and it's about the resurrection of Christ. And even though the entire chapter is about the resurrection, Paul says, hey, therefore be steadfast in the meantime. Why? Because your toil is not in vain. It's like, well, if it's all about dying and then rising again, of course it's in vain, Paul. No, what we do now matters for eternity. Poof. Right? Because I think our minds explode because I don't know how to grasp that with the worldview that I've had for most of my life. How does that fit in? If it's all about Jesus' second coming, it's like, no, it's all about us being agents of peace and justice now. And as a result of that, the kingdom of God comes. Now, one quick note, and then I'll stop here. If, and some of this probably won't mean anything to any of you, but if it does, maybe someone who's listening on the podcast might, might uh, clue in. I am not preaching post-millennialism. So just if that means anything to you at all. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.